The title of the message is Potential, little subtitle, Falling Short versus Stopping Short. And I want us to just focus in on verse 4 for quite some time, so we're going to get to it. But let me just tell you where we're headed this morning. I want to introduce a big idea about potential. That's what we're going to do first. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to underscore the life of Nehemiah, who actually lived out his potential, which was found in the purposes of God. And then we're going to identify three divine purposes for which we find our potential and live out our potential as well. Okay? So that's where we're headed. And I want to begin with just this big idea of potential, you know? And with a few personal comments, because as the years and days go by in my life, I have to say that the issue of potential becomes more prominent in my life. It means something more to me. I mean, for example, if I was 15 years of age, and I probably think, I think I speak for all of us here, perhaps if we went to a zoo and we saw this lion in a cage, we would be in awe, it would be incredible. Uh, but as I get older, there's, there's something about that idea of a of a lion in a cage, in a limited space, that bothers me as well. It's not living its full capacity and potential. I mean, the idea that drugs would be sold to young people, you know, and that begins to rewire their brains. And the human brain, as scientists have said, is the most complex mechanism in the entire universe. The idea that a young person would begin to be influenced by these chemicals that would rewire potentially their brain and that would limit their potential increasingly bothers me. I mean, the idea of devaluing or demeaning women um, has bothered me for a long time, but as I get older, it increasingly bothers me, undermining the genius potential that God has created women to experience the idea of a, an aborted child has always bothered me. It, it leaves one dead, the other scarred for life. But as I get older, I just have to say, it becomes more prominent. Because all the geniusness that is at conception in the DNA, which is just incredible. Are you with me on that, you know? Um, and then I have to say, as a dad, as a grandfather, the biggest burden I have actually is, is that my children and grandchildren live out their potential. I mean, I got to tell you, I totally agree when the leader of the most influential band in the world, which is the band U2, and the lead singer Bono says, I think love, if you really push it, what it's about is realizing potential, isn't it? I mean, it's about realizing your own potential and realizing someone else's potential. That's the job of love. And I think that's what God wants from us, is to realize your potential to be what you can possibly be. And the greatest sadness to me on this earth is the waste of human potential. Now, I don't know how that grabs you, coming from this Irish rocker here, but he's spot on. I mean, what he just said is totally biblically accurate. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning that sin pulls us down from the potential and the capacity that God has purposed for our lives. And he sent his son to raise the, the capacity, to raise the potential that we might experience life as God intended it. 
into his kingdom forever and ever and ever. The Lord who is love and who by nature embodies love is all about fighting to ensure you live the potential God has purposed for you. Hey, look, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but the Lord does not want us to stop short of the glory and the potential that he has purposed for our life. And and really, Nehemiah is so much about just that. It's a story about a man who lived his potential found in the purposes of God for him. And the same is going to be true with all of us here. The Lord wants us to live the potential he's purposed for our lives. How does that take place? It takes place in the divine purposes he has for us. So let's start this journey. There's a reason why I want us to jump down to verse 4. I actually want us to take it out of context. Because there's enough experience in this room. There's a lot of wise people, a lot of experience. That if we just take verse 4, and like a piece of the puzzle out of a puzzle, and just set it up here, just verse 4, and we evaluate. I mean, what? hey, what's going on here? I mean, what's going on in verse 4? Check it out, that... This person, and we know it's Nehemiah, but let's just pretend like we don't know who it is at this particular time. He hears something. He hears something that drops him to the floor. He sat down. He wept. He mourned for many days. He says he was fasting, praying before the God of heaven. Something, look, something radical is taking place here. You know, there's that phrase, man, I can't stand it anymore. It's like, what do you mean? I just, I just, I... I mean, it's, it's news, perhaps I can't even take standing up. Something intense has taken place here. Something severe has been heard for which this individual, we haven't introduced him yet, but it's this individual can no longer stand. He has to sit down and he weeps and he mourns. And the word mourn there, we're going to talk about in the Hebrew is a ball. It's like he is so in the moment, overwhelmed. It's like there's been a loss of a loved one. That's the word used actually to describe the type of mourning that takes place when there is such sorrow. One of the most moving pictures I've ever seen in my life, and I have to tell you thinking about it this week, I shed many tears. I saw it in a movie. And you say, well, man, you're moved by what you saw in a movie. But I know it actually speaks of hundreds of thousands of mothers who experienced this, if not millions. I know millions have. And it's this scene in the movie where you have a mother and she's at the kitchen sink and she's looking out the kitchen window and she's just working and she looks up and she sees this dust cloud that is getting closer and closer to her home on this country kind of farm type of thing. And she looks again and she's, oh, it's a car. And she drives, dries her hands as she moves to the front door and she opens the screen door and she's thinking, who is coming to my home? And as the car approaches, she realizes, oh my goodness, these are military representatives. Oh my, my son is in the war. And this could only mean one thing. And she just, just so moving to me, she lowers herself down to the porch as they approach and get out of that car and get down on their knees and begin to comfort her. And it hit me in a new way. I mean, that's my grandmother experience. I know that is what you have experienced perhaps in your family as well. Such major respect. It's off the charts. My grandmother experienced this. But it wasn't a loss of a son. It was a loss of her husband. 
She had a seven-year-old daughter who was my mom and a four-year-old daughter at home. My mother said I, I would hear my mother crying at night. My mo- grandmother was under so much stress, she lost her voice and it never fully recovered. It's like, what do you think is going on here that this person can't stand up, that this person is weeping? And as I mentioned, the word mourn there is the Hebrew word, a ball, that means the deepest sorrow, the kind of sorrow that human feels when you lose a child in death or a husband. The fact that this person is actually fasting as well and praying, well, that says this. That says that whoever this is, watch this, is doing everything and anything you could possibly do to turn down the background noise in his or her life, we know it's Nehemiah, of course, to turn down any noise, to turn up the volume of the realities that are taking place in this person's life. Because fasting does that. Fasting is denying a source of strength, which is food, and I turn the volume of my bodily appetites down, and what ends up happening is it turns up the volume of the voice of Almighty God. I mean, this is a radical process that this person is in. And it leads to a million-dollar question, what did this person hear that moves him so much that he cannot stand it? He is weeping, he is mourning, he is fasting, he is praying. Well, that's the million-dollar question. And let me just say, it has to do with potential. We're going to read the text in just a little. It has to do with potential. Because the news that he hears is that the city of Jerusalem, for which the Lord put his name, and the Lord has put his name on you, the city that the Lord put his name that identifies God's divine purposes is in shambles. It's not living its capacity and potential as God has prescribed and purposed, and that's a big deal because that city needs to be fully functional to be a part of a divine plan to impact the entire world to bring wholeness and shalom and new beginning. Can I hear a big amen to that? So in other words, here's Nehemiah's like, oh man, I... Jerusalem, which means city of the peace, which years ahead is going to witness the Prince of Peace, who's going to pay the debt of our sin, who's going to begin to create all things new in himself, demonstrated by his resurrection. He ascends to heaven. He's coming back to this very city. When he hears it's broken down, it's no small thing. It's no small thing to be under the potential and capacity that the Lord has prescribed for our lives because it's all about love. He wants the best for us. He's fighting for our highest good. This means something to this individual. And he knows behind the scenes that 170 years prior to this, there's some technicality here, but hear hear me now. 170 years prior, that city had begun to be overcome by the Babylonians, ultimately destroyed. But it was prophesied that it would be rebuilt. And the Babylonians took the Jews out of Jerusalem. There's pictures of this, actually. I mean, I'm talking hooks in their, in their faces, you know, taking this trip three, four, five hundred miles back to what is modern-day Iran. And it was prophesied, though, after 70 years, they would begin to return And Jerusalem would know its potential. Eventually Messiah would come. The entire world would be blessed. So Nehemiah, he's either witness, just like that, he's either, he's in like modern day Iran, he's either witness a few waves of those Jews already returning, or he's fully aware of it. But he he definitely knows that Zerubbabel and Joshua led a bunch 
of Jews back to the city of Jerusalem. He knows Ezra led a second return. But behind the scenes, and this is very important, is that he happens to be serving the king who has recently written a letter to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stop the construction project. So when he, and we're going to read and say, he hears news that it's stopped. He hears news that the walls are broken down. It's no small thing to him. Hits him very deeply. It's more than just like mortar. It's really nothing to do primarily with buildings. The buildings speak of broken lives. And if we rebuild the walls, then it's like, well, the, the lives can live their full potential in community and the worship of the true and living God. Can I hear a big amen to that? So it's like he's kind of in this, between this rock and a hard place. He, he like hears the news and he's like, oh my goodness, I know the greater plan of God. I happen to be serving the king who wrote a letter to stop the construction project. So what am I to do? How can I participate at this particular season to the greater good of God's great plan in this generation? I mean, my people have fallen short in times past, but I must not stop short. And that's the background. So let's pick it up here in verse 1, you guys. We're going to be here till like 1.30. Okay, no, just kidding. Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah. Ah, oh, that's who we're talking about. Son of Hakaleah came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is actually our November, December, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, we're talking literally brother, one of his brothers, fellow Jew, of course, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews, who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your, can someone tell me the next word? Covenant. Now that's very important to this. Your covenant, because that is a divine purpose for which he's going to find his potential the same with us. We're going to come back to that. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the power of your servant for which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you, both my father's and house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the Lord, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. And that happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out from the farthest of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. The idea of fear carries the idea of being overwhelmed. So they're praying, Lord, we want to be overwhelmed with the truth of who you are. 
That's what they're praying. We, we want to fear your name. We want to be overwhelmed by what reality really is, the truth of who you are and your plan. That's what they're praying. Let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Please go back up to verse 5, please. And notice that word, and I have already mentioned that word covenant. That's no small term there. Verse 5 really identifies a transition that I, Nehemiah found his potential in God's purposes starting with covenant. And this idea of covenant, we've got to talk about it, just was turned up, the volume of it, the significance of what it means. It's a big loaded term. It's so beautiful, actually. Just became like, man, I just this thing is rocking in my heart. Look, I don't know what you think of when you hear the term covenant. It's not really a term in our culture. Our culture is saturated with a different C word, which is customer, consumer, consumerism. Right? I bet you you could finish this way. I'll start a little phrase. The customer is always... Right? It's all about the customer and the individual's desires and wants and lusts or whatever the case is. The idea of consumerism or being a consumer is, you know, it's, just, it's, in, it's saturated in our culture. It carries the idea that, you know what, I'm going to shop at Ralph so long as they meet my expectations. That's the basis of the relationship. I am a consumer. The customer is always right. Total antithesis to the marital covenant. When a man and woman stand before God and make, they make this beautiful promise before the Lord and one another, they enter a marital covenant. They are promising, in essence, to take each other's hands and walk into the future and promising that they're never going to let go of each other's hands until death do us part. Now, I have to say, when Stephanie and I were married, Pastor Chuck Smith presided over our marriage. We had this secret plan, and that is we were going to add to the vows. Pastor Chuck, when he said, till death do us part, we slipped in and beyond, we said. We didn't really know if it was doctrinally correct. You know, we have the big expositor of himself, the great Chuck Smith. How many of you ever heard of Chuck Smith out of curiosity? Okay, anyways, you know, but we're slipping, and there we were, till death you part, and both Stephanie and I, do you remember that, honey? You did say that, you remember. Okay, anyways, so we both said it, right? Because we know there's a kingdom age, and it's like, hey, look, I want to be with this woman for a thousand years, man. Okay, and I know she's going to have a really big mansion in Jerusalem. I just hope I get into it. Okay, anyways, um... So we slipped that baby in. But the idea of a marital covenant is like, okay, this is a love for a lifetime. And, and it's actually not based upon what? It's not, it's not based upon conditions that come and go and are temporary. We're making a commitment. Well, God covenanted with Israel. And when you think of a divine covenant or a biblical covenant, here's how you need to think. If You need to think of a divine plan and promise. A divine plan and promise. And some of his promises were unconditional, 
Some were conditional. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a piece of real estate. Hang in there, you guys. I'm going to give you a piece of real estate known as Israel. The entire world's going to be blessed through you, descendants, Messiah, plan of salvation, guaranteed. That is an unconditional covenant. Divine plan and promise, guaranteed. Unconditional covenant is kind of what we're dealing with here. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord said, look, you're my people, but if you make very, I'm going to abbreviate, you make very poor choices, you make yourself vulnerable to bad consequences, vulnerable to outside influences, and it will result in you being scattered among the nations. But I'm telling you, if you return, I will bless you and return you to the land. And this eternal covenant through Abraham given to David and the new covenant ultimately that is fulfilled in Messiah is going to kick in because I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Here's the thing. Listen, listen, my brothers and sisters. Every single one of us find our potential in a covenant, and it's called the new covenant. It doesn't dismiss the Old Testament. That's a terrible broad brush there. It's a continuation. When Jesus at that Passover Seder said, this cup is is symbolic of the new covenant in my blood. He's like saying, look, This genius plan of the Heavenly Father that connects to eternity past, to eternity future, is through me and finds its ultimate fulfillment in me. And I'm going to inaugurate it in my blood. In other words, I'm going to light this bomb on fire of blessing that's going to transpose and transfigure and regenerate the entire world. And it's, and it's lit up by what I'm going to accomplish on the cross. Yeah, you get forgiveness of your sins, but you get a whole lot more than that. Hey, you get a type of Nehemiah coming into your life. What are we talking about? Oh, Nehemiah means comforter. And this new covenant actually comes with the divine presence of the Holy Spirit that takes residence in our life, bringing wholeness and healing it's like he put his name on us forever. But every one of us are still in process, are we not? Can I hear a big amen to that? So the walls are still being built in our life. The Holy Spirit comes and he starts working on Greg Denham's mind and our minds. And it's very important not only what you think, but how you think. Hey, 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 Greg, Greg, Holy Spirit, hey, Greg, I'm, Holy Spirit, Nehemiah comes into our lives exalts the person and work of Jesus. So it's like we think correctly. He comes and he brings healing to our emotional life, our fears, our lusts, our pain. He builds those walls. He reorients what the priorities are in our life so we make right decisions that are not only beneficial to our own lives, but for our generation and future generations. I mean, this new covenant is incredible. <laughs> And we want to make sure it's like the volume is so turned up because this is where we find our potential. It's not really all about us, but it's about God's divine plan in our life, our generation, and future generations. It's in, it's in a covenant, just like it was in Nehemiah. And what does this covenant produce in Nehemiah's life? The answer is the second divine purpose for our lives, which is a contribution to the community, to the strength of the whole 
And one of God's divine purposes for each of us. So in other words, watch this. We find our potential in covenant. Can I hear a big amen to that, you guys? Okay. Number two, we find our potential in community and a contribution to the most important community on planet Earth, which is not the United States of America, I thank God for our country. It's the counterculture to a culture breaking down all throughout the world, and that is the church that Jesus is building for which will never break down. And so check it out, chapter 2, you guys. Let's continue. And I, I, I want you to be looking for a phrase, let us rise up and build, as we focus in upon this second point. But it says in chapter 2, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now we're talking March, April, around Passover. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I'd never been sad in his presence before. So we're talking like this vision and this concern and this pain and, and this mourning and this fasting. I mean, it's, it's been lasting for months. And it, said, and it says, Therefore, king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? And this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, well, what do you request? And, and so I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen also sitting beside him, well, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I sent him a time. And furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city walls, for the house that I will occupy, and the king granted to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. The king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat and Horonite, uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And so I came to Jerusalem. And was there three days. I arose in the night, I and a few men, and I told no one what was in, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the separate uh, serpent. You know what? So sorry. I am reading this. You know what's telling me? I need glasses, okay? I, I, sorry. I, sorry. I'm getting older. I need glasses. Okay, I'm just struggling. Okay, so sorry. I, I hope in the future I don't blow it like I am. Okay, look at verse 13. I'm going to read this again. And I went up by the night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went on the fountain gate of King's Pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley, viewed the wall, and then I turned back into the valley gate, and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told them, uh, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the, uh, uh, the others, 
who did the work. And then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that had spoken to me. So they said, let's read the next few words together. Let's read it together. Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. But when Sambalah, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us. They despised us. What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them. I said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us, and therefore we as servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. I love that. Hey, look up here for a second. Look, this... This, this new covenant for which we find our purpose. Secondly, this, this idea that the, the Lord has purposed our life to make contribution to community. You guys, there is not a more important community than the community of Jesus Christ's followers. As I mentioned earlier, like there's no nation in comparison to the church that Jesus is building. We need a high view, and we do have it. And there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of Caleb's and Calebites. I mean, there's the got a remnant right here who believe that I know. But the church that Jesus is building will never break down. And to make contribution to the church, which is both universal, because there's believers all over the world, but we are purposed to meet locally as we are. Good job, you And we are purposed to make contribution to the local church. That is just how God purposed it. And to realize, my goodness, what we are a part of is God's peace plan for man. He has a peace plan in the Middle East. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Lord brings us in right relationship with him. And that through the church, we are ambassadors of the peace plan to our fellow man. The church is a refuge, a counterculture to a culture of desensitization, disintegration, and death. Today, our culture is losing feeling, vulnerable to self-mutilation. What is often now considered normal in our society is actually harmful. It's reminiscent of the time every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's scary. Those who call evil good, good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And it's like, and rather than taking that in like, oh man, we're going to look at culture and go curse the darkness. No man, we have a divine call upon our life to, to bring the light, the truth, the, the release, the covenant that brings wholeness and healing. We're not into cursing the darkness. We're into turning the light on to bring healing in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the covenant that brings that healing to our lives and to a generation. And every Christian needs each other. And I know you know that. We're all a part of the church. And to say or to ask, hey, who's the most important member of the church? Well, the answer is there is no such person. 
Because the hand can't say to the foot and vice versa, I don't need you. We all need each other. And, and here's the reality. And I'm so proud of you guys from the bottom of my heart. Because we have some precious, precious individuals in this room and some precious elders in this room who are actually embodying commitment not only to the covenant, so you are living out your highest potential, but you are also embodying that you're remaining and keeping to a contribution to the community. And Nehemiah is living out his potential by saying, like, man, I know, like, I have fallen short, my ancestors have fallen short and stuff like that, but I'm not going to stop short. And I'm going to be a part of the solution in my generation. And the Lord blessed their efforts. We've got to speed it up a little bit. But Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 and 16 tells us the walls were built in a record 52 days. They did not stop short. And they found themselves in the beginning. And if you want to, just turn it over real quick to Nehemiah chapter 8. They found themselves in the beginning of the seventh month, which is actually the Feast of Trumpets. And I like these feasts, and we're going to like them all the more in the months and years ahead. But if you notice, actually, Nehemiah chapter 7, latter part of verse 73, it says, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Okay, look up here for a second, you guys. Thank you for your patience. I'm moving quick. Watch this. Nehemiah, here's the news, like our November, December. Just get this rhythm, right? So he's like, whoa. It's like around Hanukkah. Like November, December, our Christmas. And he's just like, his world's getting rocked. And it's like, you know, so you got December, you got January, you got February, you got March. Now you're hitting Passover, hitting Nissan. And term, some terms I know may go overhead. I, I get it, but, but we're going to get them in the, year, in the, in the weeks and, and months ahead. It's our April, March, April. It's like Passover. You got this launch. You got this new beginning. You got this begin. And actually, interestingly, this beautiful church experienced a launch just around, if you go back this last year, just March, April, right? Because Vic transitioned and you began to look for your new pastor. It's a beautiful, and, and so do you have like the next six months, you got this search and you're building and things like that. Okay, so getting back to the narrative here, some interesting parallels is you have the walls built, you have the community being brought together. It's the beginning of the seventh month which actually lines up with just a few weeks ago. The Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, or the Feast of Trumpets. And then you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I don't know, these are big terms. Hang in here with me. And then you have the Feast of Trumpets. And in a few moments, we're going to read this a little bit. The community's together. The walls are built. Ezra begins to read the word of God, the people are going, amen. They're coming together as a community. They're growing. They read about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's like, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Actually, it starts tonight. You want to go back some 2,500 years ago, what we're reading here is what's rocking in the city of Jerusalem. Feast of Tabernacles, was a, it's a seven-day feast. And the Lord instructed the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go outside in short, get in like in these tents, enjoy the night sky, and remember your history that I transitioned you from Egypt into the promised land. I am faithful. Once I begin a good work, I'm going to complete it. 
I am with you. I provided manna. I provided water. I mean, I provided new beginning. Get in the land. Never forget the great rich heritage and history of the faithfulness of God that gives you confidence for the future. Can I hear a big amen to that? Zechariah, which had been written before this, they knew of this, wrote in chapter 14 that one day the king, the Messiah, is going to be in Jerusalem. And all the nations of the world are going to come up to Jerusalem during tabernacles. Because tabernacles speaks of dwelling places. God dwelt with Israel. When John wrote his gospel, Jesus dwelt, tabernacles, God tabernacled in human flesh in our midst. Jesus, in chapter 7 of John, during tabernacles, says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I will give you living waters that will come forth from your heart. Divine source out of a human being because you have right relationship with God. And one day, tabernacles means something will be on steroids, man, on planet Earth. Because you're going to have the glory of God tabernacling heaven integrated on planet Earth in the kingship of Jesus. Can I hear a big amen to that? And all of San Marcos one day, all of San Marcos will recognize Jesus as the king. But hey, we're from the future. You know, we're kind of from the future. Is that weird or what? But we kind of are. And we, we, got, we got work to do. So let us rise and build. And the most important work that we could ever be a part of. Can I hear a big amen to that? And what it tells us is our ultimate potential is realized in the second coming when we reign with the king. Your potential is found in God's purposes. So don't stop short. Don't stop short believing in the new covenant that was given to Israel, for which we are invited into. And one day, all of Israel, like Nehemiah, will cry out and mourn, and they'll recognize, oh my goodness, the one whom we pierced is our king, and they will repent, and we will be re- they will be restored. We're going to see the nation of Israel like, um, like a type of Nehemiah, experiencing a radical transformation. And we need to be a part of a generation, real quick, that helps not only Jews but Gentiles see what the new covenant is all about. It was first given to Jews and Israel for which we are invited into. And number two, don't stop short in making a contribution to the counterculture, the culture of the church. And don't stop short awaiting that our potential is ultimately in the second coming of our Lord Jesus when God tabernacles on earth in his glory. If you do these things, you will live your potential. All to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Oh, golly, you're beautiful, Lord. Your, your plan is so genius. We're so, it's, it's just like this morning, like our hearts have awakened afresh by the truth of who you are and your genius plan. And Lord, I, I, I pray as we step into the celebration of the new covenant, which was inaugurated by your blood, as you said, this is my body which is broken for you. And this cup is a, the symbolic of the new covenant. It's in my blood. That, that Lord, we like Nehemiah, if need be, would confess sins, which is a good thing. 
that we might afresh receive your cleansing and renewal. But I pray, Lord, in these next few moments together, would you, would you just descend upon us, bless us with your presence, and make alive what we just heard a fresh, big way in each of our lives. And, and we pray, Lord, in our, in our journey and in our new beginning as a church family, as, as we this week celebrate tabernacles, which speaks of your faithfulness and your dwelling, and one day ultimately found in your second coming, that this would be a time of revival and renewal right here in the blessed remnant, commitment to the new covenant, commitment to making contribution to the church, which is already at play and ultimately found in your return. And we pray for all the churches in this city, Lord, you would just rock them afresh with the who, who you are. And we pray in the, as we build and as we rebuild leading up to Passover, that you would bless, you would lead all to your glory. It's not by power nor by might, but it's by your spirit. Say, Lord, we believe that. We just want, Lord, your spirit to be in, the, in our sails. That's what we're asking. So would you do it, Lord, all to your glory. May thousands be reached in your name. May future generations be impacted. And, and just, just let me just say one more thing. Just while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Look, I, I just want to say to anyone here, maybe for the first time, I just want you to know the Lord loves you with everything. He is fighting for your highest good. He's after you. He, he loves you. And I just want you to know, really, you can leave here knowing that you are living the purpose and the potential that the Lord has you here on planet Earth. It all really starts with making a right decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize what he's done for you. Hung, bled, gave his life on the cross for you. Resurrected from the dead. Bridged the gap between God and man. He sees everything about you and loves you and he's pursuing you. And Jesus said, though, unless you repent, you'll perish. It carries the idea of needing to change the way you think. And the most important area is what you do with Jesus. I mean, have you received him as your Lord and Savior? He stands at the door and knocks. He's seeking to get your attention. He's been doing so throughout the service. I mean, have you ever opened the door of your heart to him? And said, Lord, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I mean, you're speaking to me in new ways. And I, I believe and I, I want to settle. Like, I want to settle my relationship with you. And I want to be prepared for eternity with you. And it all begins with a right decision for you. And I want to make that right now. Because that's you. Really, he is just a prayer away. Will you receive him? Those who call upon him. The Bible says, who call upon him shall be rescued. Would you like to do that? I just want to ask while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want, I want to give an invitation to receive Christ before we receive communion. Because I want to make sure it's been given. If there's anyone here that would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's you, I want you to raise up your hand right now. Let me, let me pray for you. I just want to ask while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, private moment, if you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. And let me pray for you. By raising up your hand, you'd be saying yes. And I want to enter in that covenant. I want to leave here knowing my sins are forgiven. I, I want that settled. Just these next few moments, just want to make sure an invitation is given. If you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand.